from the Xfinity Studios at WVON. We're your original social media. The Talk of Chicago, 1690 WVON. Good afternoon and welcome to Safer Transitions, a weekly radio show produced by the Safer Foundation. We want to just say a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers this weekend. I hope you're having a great weekend and have a great celebration on tomorrow. Uh, we're very happy to be here with you. This is our sixth episode. I'm Victor Dixon, president and CEO of the Safer Foundation. I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Tony Lowry, assistant vice president of community housing. Tony, how are you today? Uh, great, Victor. Glad to be on with you. And again, anytime we can share these historic studios here at WVON is always an honor. And I'd like to echo your greeting as far as a happy Mother's Day to everyone in our listening audience. Well, um, you know, we're excited to to be here with you. For those of you that don't know about Safer Foundation, we're a 46-year-old organization that supports people with arrests and conviction records, and our programs are geared towards helping reduce the barriers to employment, providing the support that helps our clients become successfully uh, engaged in employment and entrepreneurship. Uh, we've been doing the work a long time. Uh, there's a lot more work to be done. Uh, we're very excited uh, about being here on WVON. And for the listeners, the telephone number here at the studio, if you'd like to call in, is 773-591-1690. And we're very excited to talk today a little bit about the opioid crisis that we're facing here in our country, in our state, and in our city. Uh, but, Tony, uh, if someone wants to find out more about SAFER, how, how can they reach out to us, and where are the offices that they could go to? Uh, SAFER operates in and around the Chicagoland area. Our main office is at 571 West Jackson Boulevard, with additional offices at 808 South Kedzie. That's our community-based site. 6352 West Grand in the Belmont Cragen neighborhood and 249 West 162nd Street in South Holland. We also have locations in the Quad Cities at 1702 North Main Street in Davenport, Iowa. Safer also has a mobile unit that can bring services to any community in the Chicagoland area. Great. That's uh, any anybody who's interested, or if you have a family member, a friend, a neighbor who needs uh, services, who has an arrest of conviction record, and has a uh, problem securing employment, have them reach out to us. Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, the opioid issue that's going on in our country, uh, Tony. Uh, we're glad to have uh, here in the studio with us Cherie Ariazola. Cherie is the uh, Senior Director of uh, Policy and Healthcare Policy and Practice for Safer Foundation. We also have uh, Matt McFarland. Matt is a Senior Director of our Safer Demand Skills Collaborative, but Matt also uh, works very closely with the drug courts here in Cook County, and we're glad to have both of you in the studio. How, how are you doing today? Great, great, Victor. Uh, thanks. It's great to be here. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. 
Great, glad to be here. It's my first time in a studio, so this is a great opportunity. Thanks. Well, you look like a pro already, Thanks. so it's, uh, it's going to be a good uh, session. Uh, we are also uh, going to have some folks join us uh, on the line as we talk about this issue. But, you know, people may wonder, well, why are we talking about the opioid issue? And if you, if you really think about mass incarceration, there's almost no way you can talk about mass incarceration without talking about the issue of drugs because the war on drugs was a big factor in mass incarceration. If you think about it, uh, in the early uh, 70s, uh, Richard Nixon was the first to declare war on drugs. You know, just think about what happened after that. In 1980, there were about 580,000 people that were arrested for drug-related charges in the U.S. But by 2014, that number had increased to 1,561,000. And more than 700,000 of those arrests in 2014 were just related to marijuana. And, you know, the interesting thing is the arrest rate for African Americans was 716 per 100,000, while the arrest rates for whites was 192 per 100,000. Between 1980 and 2006, the number of people uh, incarcerated for drug crimes nationwide increased by a staggering 1,400%. Nearly half of the people that are serving sentences in federal prisons are incarcerated on drug-related charges. You know, um, in 1986, uh, we saw the Anti-Drug Abuse Act uh, that was passed. It was the first federal criminal law to differentiate crack cocaine from the other forms of cocaine. It established a 100 to 1 rate, weight ratio as a threshold for the five-year mandatory minimum sentence for possession convictions. So that means 500 grams of powder cocaine was the equivalent of possessing five grams of crack cocaine. Um, if you Five grams is, is about the weight of two five-cent coins, two nickels. That's about the weight of five grams. Five-year sentence disproportionately impacted the minority community. African Americans comprise only 15% of regular drug users, but they represent 37% of the arrests and 74% of those that were sentenced to prison for drug offenses. So we know that the mass incarceration issue that we're trying to deal with is directly related to the war on drugs. Um, Today we're talking about an opioid crisis, and, um, you know, it's, it, it doesn't sound like a war on drugs. So, Tony, um, what, what would you say the big difference is between how the drug issue is being dealt with today versus uh, how it was dealt with a few decades ago? Well, I, I think, Victor, and, and thanks, Victor, for that lead-in. Uh, well, years ago at the start of mass incarceration, uh, it was primary an attack on minority communities. And when you look at the statistics, you had uh, rolled out a lot of statistics, but some of the most riveting statistics are a few years ago, it was documented that 82% of people who come into Cook County Jail had tested positive for some type of drug. So when you look at the impact of drugs in our communities, where before it was criminalization, now in the country, and you're seeing it especially in states like Ohio, where you had over 4,000 deaths. Nationally, you've had over 61,000 people who've died from drug overdoses. So when you look at these issues, now is a crisis because now it impacts in 
suburban areas. It impacts in rural areas where the primary impact were in minority areas. It was criminalization. It was the rise for the war on drugs, and it was the rise for mass incarceration. And I think most of our listening audience can identify a relative or someone they know who's been impacted by these issues, who may have had an addiction issue, but it was criminalized instead of getting the help. Now we're seeing that help is made available because the the person who's addicted has changed. The person has changed from the African-American or Hispanic person to the young white person. So when you see that shift now, there's $1.9 billion available for substance abuse treatment. We see a lot of legislation. We see a lot of support. And we see a lot of access to treatment for people because of that changing dynamic of who the addiction issue is impacting. Well, t- but, t- but, Tony, it, has it really changed? Are we saying that there's not an opioid issue in the African-American in Hispanic community. It's just in the rural and small towns uh, and and, uh, suburban areas. No, the the drug issue is still there in African-American community. But again, when you look at the the rate of addiction in the African-American community and the lack of access to treatment there. So now you're seeing a shift in focus because, again, let's provide all the support and resources we can. I know a few years ago, maybe about four or five years ago, there was a in a one-month period, there were 70 overdose deaths on the west side of Chicago regarding related to fentanyl. We see now Prince has died, a lot of high-profile people had died. So these drugs have been in our communities for years, but again, because of the deaths and because of the criminalization, it didn't get the attention. It was a criminal issue instead of being a health or a public health issue and what we're seeing now because of that shifting dynamic of who's being impacted. So, so uh, really, would you say that this change of focus on a public health issue, is that a good change for not just the rural and small-town suburban communities, but also for the uh, largely African-American, Hispanic communities in the urban areas as well? Well, I think on the on the the purpose of it can potentially be a good change, but again, we have to make sure there's access to the dollars for treatment. I remember talking to Congressman Davis when they first announced the 1.9 billion, and he said, "Well, we still have to fight tooth and nail to bring those dollars into our community because, again, the focus." is on the rural and the suburban areas. So, again, when you have that much money, our treatment providers have been at the table fighting for access to those dollars. But, again, the availability of treatment, being a recovering person myself, I know that the availability of treatment is life-saving and life-changing. So, again, it's important that those dollars, that whatever funding formula we have, is targeted and prioritized in minority communities because, again, if that doesn't happen, you'll see the same thing, criminalization of substance abuse issues in minority communities and treatment in suburban and rural communities. Well, uh, Tony, uh, you know, we're going to take a little bit more time talking about what is going on in terms of addressing this opioid crisis uh, uh, around our area. Uh, We have uh, our our guests in the studio with us, and we're going to get them involved in the conversation. But we also have on the telephone with us Kathy Kane-Lewis. She's the Director of Policy and Advocacy for the Chicago Urban League. She's been very much on the forefront of addressing the opioid issue and uh, for, for, for many years, Kathy, Kathy Kane Willis, I'm sorry. <laughs> and we also have um, uh, with us the Honorable uh, uh, Cook County Circuit Court Judge Charles Burns. Uh, they're on the telephone with us. So, Kathy and Judge Burns, are you there? No? 
Hello. Yep. It's Judge Burns. Did I lose you guys? Oh, Judge Burns, how are you? Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we're glad that you have uh, had an opportunity to join us. We're, we're really interested in just talking about what kind of things are being done that really help address this issue. And we know that you, uh, you are uh, the judge that oversees the drug courts in Cook County. So um, can, what can you tell us about the drug court, uh, what the drug court does? And, and uh, I think it would be good for our audience to know what is happening on the court level to address this issue. Sure. Um, in Cook County now, we have 20 courts that we call problem-solving courts. And these are courts that are geared towards uh, pe- uh, dealing with people in the criminal justice system and getting them into the treatment that they need. I particularly run a drug court program, and I've been running it for two, uh, since 2010, so about eight years now. And what we do is we screen these cases, and we're looking for people that are uh, repeat offenders in the criminal justice system, but when we look closely at them, they're not in the criminal justice system because they're out committing violent crimes. They're out committing uh, crimes, petty crimes, to support their habits. We're looking at this where it's we're not going to lock our way out, of lock, lock people up and change anything. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to get them into particular courts, like my court, and give them treatment. We screen them. We make sure that they are... Um, drug-dependent, and most importantly, they're ready for treatment. And it's a very involved program that we, we have. It's a probation-based program. We hook them up with treatment providers. Most likely we'll start with uh, residential treatment, possibly some in-custody residential treatment, release to halfway houses, release to recovery homes. And then we have a broad um, spectrum of services that we, we give them. We make sure they get involved in self-help groups, that they have a recovery network behind them. One of the key things we find is crucial to our success is to get them into clean and sober housing. You can't put them back to where they were using for the last couple decades, and we want to make the transition to uh, responsible citizenship as smooth as possible. The last phase of the program, and this is what I work very closely with SAFER, uh, when they are well-established in the recovery, we try to get them employment. And SAFER has been an excellent partner with us. Since then, uh, we, we refer them to SAFER. They get job training. They get uh, GED classes. And SAFER has received a large grant from the federal government where they're seeking to place people not in part-time jobs, not necessarily in uh, staffing jobs, but in jobs where they can actually get careers. Uh, We've been very uh, happy with our relationship with SAFER, and frankly, we have graduates that are coming uh, to see me on on Thursday. We'll graduate a class of people, and all of them are either employed now or they are part-time employed, and they are essentially contributing members of society. So I've been uh, very lucky to have a lot of partnerships with this. The only thing I, I will say is I think our criminal justice system is, is handling these cases the right way. We are looking towards restoring these people. We are looking to rehabilitate these people, and we're looking to get them in a situation where they're much, much better off when they walk out of our courtroom than they did when they walked into our courtroom. And I think that's what the criminal justice system should be doing on these particular cases, and I think we're having a lot of successes with that. 
Well, Judge, uh, that's very, very exciting news. I mean, uh, we're, we're certainly uh, very appreciative of the partnership. And the fact that we're seeing success with it is is very important. Now, Judge, what happens to that person's uh, sentence? Are they are they uh, given some sort of reduced sentence, or when they complete this program, how, what what happens there? A lot of these people, when they walk into my courtroom, because of their background, they may be charged with a non-probationable offense. However, the state's attorney's office has been very, very. Uh, good with looking at these cases and reducing these cases where I can give them probation. So even I've had people in my in my courtroom that have been to the penitentiary 12, 15 times. They might have 17, 20 convictions. And I say, I don't care because I care only what they're going to do from here on in. Their background really is irrelevant to me. The real good news about this is they successfully complete the program, and it's a two-year program, but we will... Uh, graduate them early in a year if they go through all phases of our program, we will dismiss the charges against them. The wow. conviction is vacated, the probation is vacated, and the, uh, the conviction is vacated. We just had a, uh, a transition uh, meeting with all of our graduates, and Cabrini-Green Legal Aid has agreed uh, to help these individuals at no cost to uh, file the expungement papers, to file uh, sealing papers where Actually, the the people will not have to go through the problem of going and filing all these documents that, frankly, are pretty confusing for a lawyer. They're going to do that free of cost, and when the people walk out of my courtroom, they will not have a felony conviction on this charge. I think that's key. Now, they may have those other convictions that we may or may not be able to seal at some point in time, but if, if an employer asks them, have you had a felony conviction in the last three years, they can answer no because their conviction has been vacated. Judge, that, that is such an important uh, program. It's such a departure from what we were talking about before with how uh, we were treating uh, people involved with drugs uh, for, for many decades. And we're, we're just so uh, happy about that. So how, if someone's listening and they have a, a relative or friend that may be going through this process, how do they get into this drug court versus going through the normal path? Is there anything at all that they could do to help their, their friend or family member get into one of those courts? Sure. We have a, a, lot, a lot of different avenues. Uh, the state attorney's office screens the cases in bond court. It might be a violation of probation or another judge's probation and will send the case to me or possibly even a new case. But we have what we call lateral transfers, too. And what I would suggest anybody uh, would want to do is they should contact their attorney, and then we do have a process where their attorney can make the uh, referrals either to the public defender in my courtroom or the state's attorney in my courtroom, and we'll pre-screen We will evaluate them if it looks like uh, they uh, would, in fact, qualify or, or would be eligible for the program. We go through a, a full evaluation process, and then if they are acceptable, the case is transferred to my courtroom, and I'll put them in the program. Um, they have to be involved in the criminal justice system because this is a drug court. Uh, but we, there's a lot of different ways that we're getting cases. And, and my personal philosophy is I want to be more inclusive than exclusive because there is so much need for people to get these services. And, frankly, I got more services with treatment providers and also people like SAFER uh, than anybody in the county. 
Well, Judge, uh, thank you so much for what you're doing there. That's a very important uh, diversion option. Uh, Matt, uh, I know you've been working uh, very closely with the drug courts. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement uh, with the drug courts, what you do, and, um, you know, what, what we're hoping to accomplish there? Sure. Um, thanks to Judge Burns for joining us today. Um, well, the first thing I want to say, I guess, is I'll self-disclose a little bit that I am a, uh, myself a drug court graduate um, and came through the drug court system. Um, and I got to tell you, if had it not been for the drug court system, I myself, uh, along with other people that I was using with some of which were on the west side of Chicago and the inner cities, would not have access to care. In fact, if I may say, um, some of the people I was buying drugs from when I was using, um, it was not uncommon for, you know, on the corner of Madison and Kedzie to have the same guy that is selling um, heroin, right, offer you Suboxone or Methadone as well because those options and it was just not there for most people uh, that were battling that. Um, but as far as the drug court initiative and our uh, collaboration with it, so, you know, for over 40 years, SAFER's been operating a model that's been proven to reduce recidivism, and it's our belief that that same model is equally as effective when introduced earlier in the criminal justice process, um, not just post, you know, incarceration or post-conviction. And so operating under that belief, um, you know, we, we started looking at some of the um, prosecution deferment programs and drug courts and how we could integrate earlier on before somebody gets a conviction or gets sent to prison. And and the drug courts were, uh, Judge Burns, you being one of them, I remember those early meetings were very open to the idea um, about us collaborating and, and figuring out how we can work together. And after determining when the best time was to intervene in somebody in this process, we determined it was around phase three of the process where they had already gone through the inpatient treatment and then they, were, they had less uh, mandates as far as the reporting and, and things like that. But I'll tell you, we, we did it. We ran it as a pilot for the first year, and Judge Burns, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, we had some great successes. People were getting jobs. They were keeping those jobs. And, I, you know, we saw less people going back and getting reincarcerated and, and you know, convicted. Um, and now with, that, uh, with our Department of Labor grant, we're able to interface on a broader scale and offer these services to a wider range of folks and uh, incorporate things like contextualized job readiness, um, cognitive behavioral therapies, and as Judge Burns alluded to, uh, helping people with GEDs and things like that, along with vocational training programs and job placement. Well, that's, fa that's fantastic. We're, we're very excited about the partnership with uh, the specialty courts of Cook County, and um, Matt, we you know, really appreciate the job you're doing as well, and uh, having gone through the process of understanding what people uh, need and what works, and, and I think that's part of what makes, makes this partnership work. Um, I want to ask uh, Kathy Kane Willis uh, from the Urban League to join us. Kathy, Kathy are you on the line now? I am indeed. I'm so sorry. Before um, I somehow got disconnected, it's the miracle of technology. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> We're glad you're back. Uh, Kathy, you know, you've been out there on the forefront of, of pushing uh, for uh, the resources and pushing issues around addiction for a long time before it really became uh, kind of a uh, popular subject in the news all the time. Uh, can, can you tell us, first of all, a little bit about your current role uh, at the Urban League, and then also uh, your view of what's happening on the uh, the opioid scene and, and what needs to happen uh, further from here. 
Well, uh, so in terms of my role at the Urban League, which I've been I've been at the Urban League a little less than two years, so I do the coordination of policy and advocacy for the league, and we have um, five different areas that we work in, which is a lot of different areas, but this area falls into our public health and public safety initiative. And um, one of the things that uh, we, we released uh, an issue brief called Whitewashed, um, the African-American opioid epidemic, because the portrayal of the opioid epidemic has been one of white, suburban, and rural folk. And when you really look at the data, particularly in, in Illinois and in Chicago, but in the Midwest in general, um, the death rate from opioids is much higher among African Americans than it is among whites. Wow. Let me just say that again. Like People really don't realize that the, that African-Americans died a much higher rate from opioids in Illinois, in Minnesota, in Missouri, in Wisconsin. And I think there's going to be a number of other states where this is going to be come to the fore, where the African-American death rate will, will exceed the white death rate, perhaps even in some areas in Ohio. Um, and it's because of the fentanyl. And one of the things that we that I've worked on was getting naloxone, the opioid antidote, into people's hands because we cannot get people jobs or get people into treatment once they're dead, right? You know, the first thing yeah. is we need to keep them alive. Absolutely. And and one of the issues is that it looks like naloxone is not getting into the hands of African Americans. So uh, Congressman Davis was absolutely right. It's not just about the treatment dollars, but it's about making sure that evidence-based solutions are getting to the folks who need them. And again, the African-American population has been left out of this equation. And I think this is why the death rate is so high. Because when we look at the data in terms of use, the use isn't so high, but the death is. You know, Kathy, uh, I, I don't think that uh, I've heard, uh, thinking about all of the press around the opioid crisis in the newspaper, mm-hmm. on television, mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Because it, you, yeah. you're absolutely right by using that term whitewash, because you, you really would conclude that uh, this death, spike in deaths, is purely, mm-hmm. you know, uh, disproportionately affecting the white community. That's the impression. Uh, that's just fantastic. Uh, to, uh, it's just to understand that the, the reality of what's going on. Um, um, can I just say one other thing? I, I just returned from Portugal to study what their their model looks like for um, opioid addiction, and Portugal decriminalized the personal possession of all drugs in 2001. And what they do is everything is done under the Ministry of Health, and they have um, outreach programs, harm reduction programs, treatment on demand. It's a whole completely different system. And you know what? Their HIV, their drug use has dropped dramatically. Their overdose rates, overdoses have dropped dramatically. Um, HIV, hepatitis C, dropped dramatically. And so when we're thinking about innovative solutions, sometimes we don't think about, you know, why is, why, that there might be something else, another thing to do, which would be to move personal use 
into a decriminalized place or at least uh, make it not a felony for a personal use amount of some of these opioids because it really does prevent people from getting housing, jobs, education, so many things for what is a health condition. So I just wanted to bring that up. Well, that that's uh, that could probably be an entire show by itself, <laughs> and and certainly there's some some uh, people running for office this year who have uh, proposed uh, legalization of marijuana as kind of a first step. So you know. Can Kathy and um, Judge Burns, if you could hold on. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, but we'd like to continue the conversation about uh, what's going on here in Illinois in response to the opioid crisis. Uh, We're here on Safer Transitions on WVON um, 1690, the talk of Chicago on iHeartRadio. You can join the conversation here by calling station at 773-591-1690. You can also contact us um, on social media at Safer Foundation on Facebook and Twitter. So why don't we take a quick break? We'll be right back in, in a couple of minutes. The Talk of Chicago, 1690 WVON. Are you or someone you know with an arrest or conviction record struggling to find employment or looking to advance your career? Then go to saferfoundation.org forward slash events and you'll find a list of upcoming sessions that will give you information about a wide variety of employment and career building opportunities. Find out more information at saferfoundation.org forward slash events or on our Facebook page. Safer Foundation is hiring. There are immediate needs for intensive case managers and correctional security officers, many of whom have gone on to build successful careers in corrections and law enforcement. Safer offers a competitive salary, generous benefits, and a leadership team that's committed to making Safer a great place to work. Check out these and other career opportunities today at saferfoundation.org forward slash careers. Are you in need of a one-stop shop for all of your construction needs? Safer Foundation Social Enterprise Reconstructing Technology Partners is a full-service construction company that provides a wide variety of expert building and repair services. Visit us online at rtpchicago.com or call us for a free consultation at 872-444-5595. America! Hi, this is Cliff Kelly, WVON host and honored veteran, inviting you to listen every Saturday from 4 to 5 p.m. as I host America's Heroes Group, where we speak truth to power regarding the treatment of veterans, retired and active, discussing concerns for affordable housing, social services, Medicare, and all services geared toward veterans. America's Heroes Group, where we speak truth to power. WBON.com, the website. Check it out. Welcome back to Safer Transitions. This is Tony Lowry here in the studio with our guests, uh, Matt McFarland, also Sheree Ariazola. On the telephone, we have Kathy Kane Willis in the Urban League and, she, and Judge, Judge Burns from the Cook County Criminal Courts. We also have our president, Victor Dixon, here in the studio with us. Um, we're here at WVON, the Talk of Chicago, and iHeartRadio. You can call us in the studio by dialing 773 773- 
773-591-1690. Again, that's 773-591-1690 to pick up on the conversation. Now we're going to do a deeper dive into the opioid conversation, and we're going to bring in Cherie Ariazola from the Safer Foundation to talk about the Illinois Opioid Crisis Response Council and also about the new federal funding that has opened up opportunities for treatment for people who suffer from opioid addiction. Cherie? Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the Illinois Opioid Crisis Response Advisory Council. Um, It stems actually from uh, some of the two landmark pieces of legislation on the federal front. One was the Cures Act, which freed up about $1 billion over two years um, to states for the opioid uh, prevention and treatment. Another one was CARA, which stands for the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, which opened up funding specifically for medication-assisted treatment, and I'll talk about that in a second. Illinois uh, created the Illinois Opioid Crisis Response Advisory Council, and this council was charged to advise the uh, governor's opioid prevention and intervention task force on how to address the opioid epidemic in Illinois. Um, Their plan is to reduce the number of opioid deaths by 33% in three years. In Illinois, about 11,000 people have died um, due to overdose since about 2008. Um, And so I have the privilege um, of chairing the Criminal Justice Populations Committee on that council. And it's a great opportunity to interject in a lot of those conversations about the fact that very few people involved in the justice system have ever seen a doctor in the past you know, five or so years. And very few of them will see a doctor uh, post-release. And in that, in that, at that table, a lot of the conversation is around the doctor's offices. And that's, a lot, that's where a lot of the solutions are uh, being talked about. And so I really am happy that I am there so I can interject that as we're getting in all this money, I think Illinois got about $16 million um, uh, for two years each year. Um, but it, it's a great opportunity to, to, to affect the solutions that they're talking about because you know, putting the money and solutions at the doctor's offices are great. But when people can't, don't even have insurance to go to the doctor, um, or you know, people might even get Medicaid, but then if you lose your card, don't know what number to call, don't know what questions to ask, you know, people are going to go to the emergency room. And that's the thing that I keep um, advocating for, talking about, is that um, even though we're trying to push people out of the ER and into community-based treatment, that system is so hard to access, and it's almost irrational not to go to the ER when you're in a time of crisis. And so I think something that Maryland did, which I think would be great if we can replicate in Illinois, is they actually created an ER specifically for substance use um, treatment so that if people were having a crisis or or needed help, they could just go and it was open 24-7. And they used their money that they received from Cures to do that. Um, so now, Sheree, give us a little more information about what actually Cures does as far as the impact, potential impact it will have in minority communities. Well, it, re- it released a lot of uh, funding to, to states to try to uh, come up with pilots to address the opioid epidemic. Um, they pushed a lot of funding to um, hospitals to have social workers at, at ERs to connect them to treatment. 
um, medication-assisted treatments. Um, a lot of people don't know that there are medications out there that you can take that will help with the cravings or the withdrawal symptoms. Um, some of those are naltrexone, a camprosate, um, there's methadone suboxone, which Matt talked about earlier. And a lot of people don't know that these exist, and Medicaid covers all of that. So if you have someone who's on, who's on Medicaid and who has um, an alcohol or drug um, issue, they can find, that's the hard part, finding someone, but there's providers out there that offer these medications. And I know someone who used that to stop drinking, and they told me they would have never been able to stop without it. And so bringing those type of resources to the community is, I think, something that from from our from my perspective, and I think everyone at this in the studio's perspective, is how do we bring those resources to the people that we know, the people that we care about? How do we tell the decision makers how to make those policies, um, shape them in a way that reduces the barriers to care? Um, and so that's I'm just happy um, to be at the at that table. I'm happy to be working for an organization like Safer, and happy to use. Um, I think my personal experiences with friends and families, trying to help them get to services and just how hard it has been, um, and try to use that to kind of fuel my advocacy around this issue. And another question for you, Cherie. Uh, with the lack of access in the communities where the people we serve come from, is there a listing of those organizations? Because I know being a person who's been engaged in treatment and helping people in the recovery community the need for medical detox is a critical need. So is there a listing of organizations or facilities where a person could go for that medical detox, which is very important because, again, that's a deterrent for any type of treatment, especially when you're looking at an opioid situation where the fear that I'm going to be sick, I don't want to be sick, so I, I think is there a listing that would identify some medical detox resources? Um, it's, it's funny that you ask that because Illinois just released a new helpline. It's the opioid, um, uh, I don't want the actual official title, but opioid crisis helpline. I'm trying to find the number right now so I can say it on the air. Um, but if anyone had, needs any type of assistance, they can call or they can call for someone else and they can get connected. Um, and then if someone has Medicaid, they can call their um, the back of their card, but I think this helpline specifically is run by um, uh, social workers, and so I feel like they might have a better um, sense of, of what people need and where to send them to. But the number is one eight three three two find help. Again, that's one eight three three two find help. Illinois helpline for opioids and other substances. You know, Cherie, um, the governor announced last week that uh, the uh, Medicaid waiver that the state of Illinois submitted to the federal government was approved, and that was going to put, um, I think I think they said about $1.3 billion of, of additional funding into uh, these areas to, to help with the op opioid issue and other mental health issues. What do you know about that, and how can that help the situation? So, um, the, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of services that organi organizations provide um, in Chicago and Illinois, and some of those might not be direct medical services, but they're services that um, help the individual. And some of those services include supported employment, 
and supportive housing um, and other services like that. And so what Illinois did was they applied and they pretty much asked the federal government, can you allow us to cover these services even though they're technically not um, allowed to be covered by Medicaid? And so everyone was really hopeful about this uh, uh, being approved and it just got approved on Monday. And um, they're going to put about $2 million towards helping people get jobs, keep jobs, get homes, get into um, uh, housing and stay in housing. There's also, uh, it'll also expand the number of residential treatment um, beds because they're gonna allow um, people to access services in facilities with more than 16 beds. That's a little technical. Um, but yeah, it's gonna, they're also gonna provide funding for recovery coaches. So people who have lived experience and who've been there, um, they're gonna provide funding for those folks to help um, other people in their recovery. Now, Sharif, for our listeners who may not understand, what does supportive employment and supportive housing do? How will it help people who are impacted by issues associated with substance use or opioid addiction? Um, well, the support, the supportive housing and supportive employment, it's uh, services to um, to uh, identify um, someone's employment and housing needs, to get them into employment and housing. Um, and it also works to uh, incorporate if somebody's in treatment or somebody is in other, um, in other services. I'm actually gonna let Matt talk about this because he's more of an expert in that than I. So, um, <clears throat> well, I, I guess I can, I can speak to supported employment mm -hmm. and um, what supported employment is, is actually an evidence-based practice originally. Well, supported employment, IPS, Individualized Placement Support, is an evidence-based practice designed to uh, help people with severe and persistent mental illnesses um, to gain employment. Um, and there's some kind of core functions of supported employment, like benefits counseling and things like that, that, that take place and are part of the employment decision-making process. However, um, there are some, some good, there's been some good research to show that the supported employment or IPS model is also very effective with helping people that have substance abuse disorders as well. Okay, okay thanks. You know, um, Kathy, are you still on the line? Yeah, I was going to add something that's really important on the state level and also with these new, um, the Medicaid guidelines is that uh, methadone is now covered under Medicaid and all medications to treat opioid addiction are covered under Medicaid. Plus, also, all OD reversal drugs are covered under Medicaid. So naloxone, Narcan, that's covered under Medicaid. So, I mean, this is huge. The, the fact that we did not have access to methadone under Medicaid, I mean, people in other states would look at me like, what is up with Illinois? Is that really the truth? But now everything is covered. The problem I think that we have, we're talking about treatment capacity, is that we haven't really invested in our treatment infrastructure in Illinois. And so there isn't enough suboxone methadone treatment um, the gold standard for um, opioid addiction in the, in the state and in the city. Um, I know that the city of Chicago uh, did uh, put a quarter of a million dollars for medication-assisted treatment specifically for the West and the South Sides uh, just this year. So hopefully that, that, that little bit will, will help. Um, but I think it's really important when we're talking about um, 
treatment and, of course, the wraparound services that are related to treatment and employment and housing that we that people know that they can access through Medicaid any all, all of the medications and the uh, OD reversal drugs. I think it's really important in that, um, y- yeah, even though we don't have enough treatment, yeah. it's you kind know, of a... Ka- yeah. Kathy, uh, you know, uh, last year my son's uh, best friend... Um, overdosed and uh, mm-hmm. and died, and this oh, idea so idea of the uh, o- o- overdose reversal drugs, um, it seems like that's something that you know anybody who has a family, friends, or whatever that are that are uh, struggling with uh, these drugs should have access to. How, how I mean, is it something that you can? now go to like a Walgreens or something like that and, and can you get those those uh, get those drugs there so you, you can't ha- you would have it on hand if you know that someone Ab- around you is using you know yeah absolutely you can go to um, CVS Walgreens uh, it's gonna depend a little bit on whether they have the training in the um, whether they have the the medication. Uh, in the pharmacy because naloxone isn't always something that pharmacies carry, you know, hospitals carry it. But a place that people can get it for free is the Chicago Recovery Alliance. And um, so if they go to the website, the Chicago Recovery Alliance, they have mobile vans. The thing is that the Chicago Recovery Alliance does syringe exchange and harm reduction um, services. And so... um, the, but but you can get naloxone there for free. But everyone who has, who, even if you're prescribed opioids for pain, should have a co-prescription for naloxone, Narcan, um, written by their doctor. The pharmacist, what they do is they are initiating, it, it is a prescription, but it's a pharmacist does the prescription so it's not over the counter but you can go um to pharmacies and get it the question is with private insurance you know what's the coverage and and those kinds of things under medicaid it is covered if you don't if you if you didn't have insurance coverage uh is it very costly if for a person to just it would purchase. be. It's extremely costly. In fact, there's been a bit of price gouging, um, and the price has gone up significantly on uh, naloxone, the generic Narcan, and then there's also um, a device that's an auto injector that's very expensive. And so, and what, what do you um, mean by that? What kind of costs are you talking about? Because you know you're oh, talking about a human life. Dollars you know? out of pocket for the auto injector. Um, several hundred for the uh, nasal, and then, um, but like I said, if you do, but you could go to Chicago Recovery Alliance and get it for free. Okay, that's that's which that's is good zero for cost. Yeah, free. And, and the thing, <laughs> and the thing is, for folks who know people who are using drugs, or have a family member, a friend, or are, live in a community where. You know there are there are there are open air drug markets are just it's good to carry naloxone because you can save someone's life, and in fact, what we find with naloxone distribution, the biggest bang for our buck is to get it into the hands of people who use drugs because they reverse eighty percent 
of overdoses. And here's the thing about that is when someone reverses an overdose, even if they're addicted, it's very empowering. Wow, I saved someone's life. It gives them confidence, and we see them moving to treatment from that incident. So, I mean, naloxone distribution and um, and using naloxone really can be a bridge towards uh, changing people's lives and, and getting them out of addiction because, you know, so much of addiction is is feeling shamed and and then you use because of the shame, you know. So this kind of flips the paradigm on that. I, well, I'm I'm a lifesaver. Yeah, that's that's a that's a very good information. Um, very good for our listening audience to know. Um, I know I know you know people may be wondering why why would you know Save for Foundation be talking about this? Well, a lot a lot of the people that we try and, uh, and help that want employment. Uh, one of the barriers that many of them have to overcome is uh, they have to be able to pass the drug test, and most of the yep. employers are looking for that. So uh, it's almost like you can't really move toward the any serious conversation about employment if a person can't get over that hurdle. So um, the other thing is, you know, the the, the how the drug, uh, the way we've dealt with drugs in America has fueled mass incarceration, and and this new yep. approach which really uh, is good, especially if it, it finds its way into the African-American community, if the resources find their way, if the uh, access to alternatives to um, incarceration uh, like Judge Burns is providing, um, then we have a formula that has a way of uh, helping us really dramatically change a major problem in our area. So we we've, appreciate uh, all of our guests we appreciate uh, Sharia Ariazola and Matt McFarland from uh, Safer Foundation. We certainly appreciate uh, you, Kathy Kane Willis, and and Judge uh, Burns. We appreciate everything you all are doing to help people deal with this issue, overcome it, and move on to more productive lives. So, thank you so much for joining us today. If you have questions about uh, what we've been talking about or want access to some of the resources, you can call uh, Safer at 888-972-3374. You can also um, email us at uh, Safer transitions at saferfoundation.org. And before we leave the air, I'd like uh, Kimberly Van, uh, our co-producer, to uh, make an announcement about a new opportunity that we have available through Safer Foundation. Thanks, Victor. For those interested in IT coding, Catalyst Training is having orientations for coding cohorts at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. on May 15th and May 22nd at 9948 South Halsted. And for more information, you can call 888 888- 972-3374 for more information. We'd also like to thank all who attended and supported our gala last Friday. We would especially like to thank the following sponsors for their support. BMO Harris Bank, ComEd, Eurist Dining Services, Presence Health, AT&T, BKD LLP, Crawford Investment, GE Healthcare, Cantor & Morgan, Patent It, Lisa Foundation, and U.S. Bank. Thank you so much, uh, Kimberly. Uh, we appreciate that. 
And we're going to uh, wrap up today. We'd like to thank our uh, engineers, Titus Williams, uh, our executive producer, Landon Williams, our co-producer, Kimberly Van, production assistants, Brianne King and Janice Jones. Thank you for listening to Safer Transitions. Tune in uh, next week for our show here at 2 p.m. here on WVON, the talk of Chicago 1690 and iHeartRadio. Have a great afternoon, great weekend. Happy Mother's Day, all you moms. Thank you.